Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 197 today. Uh, We're going to be discussing Quarks of Light, A Near-Death Experience, which is a book written by Rob Gentile. We have Rob here today, which is going to be a pretty interesting conversation regarding his near-death experiences and his book. Um, So you can check that out. I have the link down below the video and the, uh, the information. You can also head on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Uh, if you listen to our show and you enjoy it, um, for just $2 a month, you basically get a whole nother catalog of stuff, You know, whether it's guests we've had on and stuff that's not even on our normal pages. So go check that out. And one more thing, head on over to indrasweb.org. It is live. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So whether... You're discussing different theories, hypotheses, speculations um, with realistic, you know, data and uh, um, research. That's the place to do it. So go check that out. Um, and without further ado, welcome on the show, Rob. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate being here. Thanks yeah, for joining us. Really enjoyed your book. Uh, we actually haven't had a near-death experiencer or author on in a while, so I'm I'm glad to have you on, and uh, I really enjoyed your perspective on it. And it's something a little bit different than, uh, some of the other more famous near death experiences and and books out there. So, uh, why don't you give us just a little bit of a background, um, of the story, not too much, obviously, uh, we don't want to give the whole book away, but just, you know, a little bit of the background and then we'll go from there. Sure. Thank you. So what happened to me, uh, at age 56, this was on January 26, 2016, after some minor surgery I had, it was completely unexpected, Mike. I had, uh, I'm originally from the Pittsburgh area, and I had gone to Pittsburgh, actually, to have some minor surgery on my neck from some uh, sports injuries in the past. So they determined I had bone spurs because I had this uh, pain in my, in my neck for like a year. I was cycling through an army of doctors. Nobody could figure it out. Finally, they figured out it was bone spurs. So went to Pittsburgh. At this famous Korean doctor operate on me, he goes in through the front of the neck instead of the back. Mm. So you don't end up with fused discs and, you know, pain the rest of your life. And it was very simple surgery. I was only in the hospital for, uh, for one night, did very well, got the bone spurs removed, came back to North Carolina where I live. And four days later, in the middle, well, not middle of the night, it was about 11 p.m., I had a massive heart attack. So my wife didn't know what was going on. I don't remember anything about that. I was screaming in pain. Uh, I was pretty much after that, I screamed in pain and I was in so much pain. She said, I just passed out. She called the ambulance. They rushed me to the hospital. Thank goodness the hospital is only three miles from my house. Mm. And the ambulance driver knew I was having a massive heart attack. So I got into the hospital. They put me in a room. They knew what was happening. They gave me blood thinners and some medicine to kind of like, you know, calm things down and monitor me to see what was gonna happen. So they thought they had me stable. I was in the room with a nurse and my wife. And then all of a sudden, my wife says it was uh, like a movie scene from The Exorcist. Um, I'm laying there on the gurney and all of a sudden I sprung forward, like somebody had grabbed me by by the shirt and pulled me forward with great force to get my attention and my eyes popped wide open and I screamed out the name Frosty. When I did that, I collapsed backward on the gurney, code blue rang out through the hospital and in rushed a team of doctors started to resuscitate me, try to resuscitate me. So I flatlined and I was out. I was dead for 20 minutes. They tried Paddle shocks, uh, sternal, vigorous sternal rubs. They did the epinephrine with the long needle. They just shove it into your heart. I had three doses of that. 
and they could not they could not get me back. Um, so I had a very very uh, sympathetic woman by the name of Dr. Shadia Patel, who we're best friends now, mm. who refused to give up on me some some for some reason, and there's more to that story. But finally, she was able, I guess, to obtain a slight pulse. The cardiologist was in route. When he arrived, he had gone in through my um, through my leg, fished up a uh, you know kind of like a, a balloon, found the blockage which was in my widowmaker, put two stints in, but deep damage was already done to my heart. Uh, I went into cardiogenic shock. They intubated me, and I slipped into a four-day coma. Wow! So that's how it started. So. Did you have what well, during the cardiac arrest? Is that when one of the near death experiences happened? That twenty minute period, or you know, it's hard to say when exactly these things happen. Oh, because of course uh, you were unconscious, yeah. or but here's what I think happened. Because then, as I woke from my coma, um, all the pieces of the story began to unravel. <clears throat> so during that period. Uh, my brother drove down, my oldest brother drove down from Pittsburgh. He called a local parish priest. I was raised Catholic. And he, the priest came, you know, it's like one of these things in the middle of the night, right, with the dark right. coat on, um, anoints me, gives me my last rites. And several neurologists during that four-day period were coming in and out to see if I were brain dead, how they test you for that, I don't know. But so on the fourth day, they decided, you know, to pull the tubes out. He said, if he breathes, we'll see what we got. If he doesn't, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. So, but what happened was, is that when I came out of coma, my wife was the first one to approach my bed. And I said to her, you have to believe me. You have to believe me. It was your brother, Frosty. He came to me. And she said, oh, my God, it makes sense now. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And she said, right before you flatlined, you sprang forward on the gurney. You screamed out his name, and then you collapsed, and code blue rang out. And she said the whole time before they escorted me out of the room, I was screaming, no, 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 don't go to Frosty, don't go to Frosty. Because, you know, we all know that um, some people believe, which I do, that a spirit comes to ease you, ease your passing mm. uh, to the other side. And so she thought her brother had come to me to ease my passing to the other side. Now the Were, you close? Were you close with him, or? I was, um, and the backstory on that is so. So unfortunately, my brother-in-law had committed suicide seven weeks before I died, and his mother, the night he took his own life, he was living in the upstairs bedroom of his parents' house. He was separated from his wife, and she had called me and said, "Hey, can you come down and go up into his room and and try to find a journal or a notebook or something that would give us a clue as to why he did this." So seven times, Mike, I went up into that room and picked through a gruesome scene. And finally, on the seventh time up, I found a journal, which mm -hmm. I did give I did give to the family. So that is where I believe Frosty came to me because my wife said to me, tell me exactly what Frosty said to you. And what Frosty said to me was, you have to go back and clean things up because I've made a big mess out of things. Hmm. But tell my family I'm in a good place. So when I, you know, that was the first, that was my first experience into this spiritual realm because honestly, having been raised Catholic, I had this idea that, you know, suicide was a mortal sin. That's what I was taught when I was growing up as a kid. You know, there's no past, no go, you go straight to hell. Um, so, when Frosty told me, tell my family I'm in a good place, it really changed my whole paradigm of, you know, God, creator, where we might go. And it was a harbinger of things to come because looking back, Frosty prepared me for what was yet to come and experience in Chicago when I my body gave out the second time. Yeah, that's uh, something, too, that uh, I know that in the near-death community, people talk about a lot in terms of research, is that if people commit suicide, sometimes a lot of those people have more negative near-death experiences, or not negative per se, but just perceived that way, the people that survive, you know? Um, yeah. 
But I know also there are some where people see religious figures or go to heaven too. So it's one of those things where it makes you wonder, is it something with, you know, the mind that's going on that's um, processing in a certain way? Or is that where your mind's at at the time? You know, I, you know, that's something that, that interests me for sure. Yeah. Well, with, you know, with two witnesses um, watching that occur and why would I scream Frosty's name out, no, out of the sure, clear, yeah. clear blue, right? But I have to, so I have to share uh, the second part of the story. I see Maurice is waiting for this. So, <laughs> oh, um, yeah, baby. Uh, so, so what happened is that the second day out of coma, this uh, beautiful Indian doctor, this woman, Dr. Patel, that I was telling you about, she was in the, in the ER that night, the woman that wouldn't give up on me. Mm. And she, uh, she sits down beside me. And at that time, my arms were paralyzed. So she, she sits down and she, she reaches down into my bed and puts her hand on mine. And, and she begins to cry and tell me about, you know, how happy she was to see me alive and how many times she almost lost me and all these things. And then all of a sudden, the conversation got real personal and emotional. And there had, some, there had been something else locked inside my subconscious besides Frosty, and I didn't know what it was. But Dr. Patel started to tell me about how close she was with her father, and her father and her could almost know each other's thoughts simultaneously at the same time, and that she was pregnant with her first child, a boy. And that's all her father was living for, to see this boy's face. That's all they talked about. Well, unfortunately, her father had a brain aneurysm and he died a couple of months before her child was born. So she's telling me this story and she's like, you know, I have become very bitter and she's a Hindu. And I, you know, I've lost my faith and um, I feel like there's there's nothing there. But she said, seeing you alive today, you know, gives me hope. Mm. And while she's telling me this, this puzzle unscrambles in my mind and my subconscious finally releases it. And while she was working on me, I kept on hearing this male voice say, keep working on him. Don't give up. You can save him over and over and over again. And, you know, Dr. Patel and I talk about it now all the time. And I always, I always call her on her father's birthday because there was a spiritual prompting, even though she didn't hear it, but her father was speaking through me, pushing her forward, giving her the, the strength not to give up, telling her to keep working on me. So it was a fascinating piece mm. of that, that whole first experience. Yeah, that is what's, interesting. What's like the, what's the hospital protocol when someone is pronounced dead? You said you were, you were out for like 20 minutes. Like, is there a certain amount of time that they will give it or is it just kind of by feel? You know what, Maurice, great question, because typically I don't know what the protocol is. I've asked Dr. Patel about that, and she's kind of reserved about it, because I think in those situations, it's probably up to, you know, the ER doc who's working on you. But 20 minutes is a long time. Yeah. Um, and she refused to give up on me. I think part of, you know, part of what may have happened here is that when they, when they were ushering my wife out of the room, my wife appealed to Dr. Patel. She said, listen, we have a special needs child, our only daughter, and my husband's very close to her, and she's not going to make it without him. And I could tell you, I can't do this alone, so you have to save him. And then when she was you know, taken out into the hall, she dropped to her knees and began praying out loud to God to save me. So Dr. Patel, I think, had a lot of sympathy for my wife in that moment. And then, like I say, the spiritual aspect of her father prompting her along was a very cool part of the story that I found out, you know, afterwards coming out of coma. Now, do you think that um, in terms of when you're in that state, you know, you're unconscious, but you're having these, um, does it feel more real? Because that's something that most people talk about, and it's something that transcends multiple altered states is this feeling of more real than real. Did you have that feeling when you were in there? 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, in in that particular near-death experience, because I don't, nobody knows these things, right? When when Frosty Spirit came to me, because what's curious about this first near-death experience that I had, Mike, was that I didn't see Frosty. Mm. I heard Frosty, and it's it's hard to express the essence of a a person's spirit that comes and and speaks to you, and and of course, Dr. Patel's father. But it was my second near-death experience where I had encountered a lot more of what you you're asking now that okay. we can get into. Yeah, we'll get into yeah. that in a second. One more one more thing. Uh, sure. We've had Dr. Penny Sartorian, and she worked with end-of-life patients in the UK, um, and a lot yeah. of them similar thing. They reach out to somebody as they're dying, and it's a it's a family member's name or somebody's name, and they're reaching out as if somebody's there. Um, so that, that whole thing about being pulled away or having some sort of presence or some sort of entity that you're familiar with there, I, I think that that's very interesting. And it's something that happens with most people that experience these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do I you believe that now? Do you, do you think though that, um, do you think that, well, were you thinking about Frosty at any point during the lead up? at that point or was that just something you think it's it's not a coincidence that that was the case like in terms of like brain function well first of all i've in my journey and you having read my book particularly you know that right i don't believe in coincidences right matter of fact i believe that coincidences are god's way of remaining anonymous frankly because i had no i had frosty was not on my mind i mean it was seven weeks later mm-hmm. and when I had that heart attack in my bed, like my wife said, I was in so much pain that I just passed out. I mean, I, I stopped screaming. She called the, the ambulance. A neighbor came over to watch my daughter. I don't remember any of this until, you know, I came out of coma and still didn't remember the hospital ride to this day or, or, or any of it. Right. So, so Frosty was really not in my consciousness at all. Okay. And why, and why him? Right. You know? Well, as yeah. you mentioned, though, there was that connection to you know, his passing and you having to, uh, find the notebook and everything. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, all right, so let's move on to the second portion or the second near death experience and the heart transplant and everything. Why don't you give us a little bit of a backstory from there? Sure. Yeah. So as you can imagine when, so when I woke up from coma, my heart was completely destroyed and these doctors said, look, <clears throat> the only chance you have to, to survive is to get a heart transplant. There's no fiction in your heart. 80% of it is dead. So what they did actually, which is which is kind of interesting, and there's a there's a funny part of the of the book where I talk about two things. Before I left, they so they put me in this defibrillator vest that looks like kind of like it looks like a um, bulletproof vest that a police officer would wear. Right, and they allowed you to go home, right? I mean like <laughs> Well, I went to rehab first. Right. But they allowed you to leave, which to me, reading that, I was just like shocked at the, <laughs> that that was going on, that that's a thing, you know? I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, you look at what the hospitals are doing today. They can only keep you for so long. Right. Okay. Look, we've, we've saved your life now. We've got to move you out to the next stage, right? There's nothing more that they could do. So they moved me to rehab, but they had put me in this defibrillator vest. And every time my heart missed a beat or something, this thing would shock you back to life. That's crazy. Uh, so you, I had this big battery pack slung over my right shoulder uh, with, this, with this red light flashing. And every time my heart would go out, you know, you'd get this. Right. Uh, and, you know, some people pass out from it. It's, but definitely you get, you get PTSD from this thing, you know, if it keeps on, keeps on. Does it range on. like the shock? Like, does it? is it responsive towards the situation meaning, or is it all the same amount of voltage every time it does it? Same amount of voltage. Okay. It does talk to you though. It's it, 
you know, it's this robotic voice warning, stand back because if, it's if Siri, somebody else, Siri, Siri's talking. <laughs> it's Siri. Because if somebody else is touching you at the moment, they're going to get, they're going to get blasted. Right. You know? uh, so, so anyway, I, I had that on me. And then as my, as this, you know, journey unfolded to, to try to find a heart, of course, I went to all the transplant centers here. I went to one in Charlotte. I went to one in Duke. I couldn't get a heart. But what they did do in Charlotte is they put this port in my chest, which drips uh, a medicine called milrinone on your heart. And my doctor said, think of it, think of it as STP. It makes the heart beat, but it also starts the clock ticking. So the heart wears out a lot faster. Mm. So it's just a bridge. So they put this port in me. And now I've got another battery pack over my left shoulder. And every 45 to 60 seconds, you know, you hear this whirring sound. It's dripping this medicine on your heart. Wow. So I'm walking around like this cyborg creature from, you know, a science fiction movie, right, with all this stuff. Was it difficult to sleep, like, with the noises and the... Almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Which is probably a strain in itself, right? So... It was very strange in itself, yeah. And they give you all these blood thinners, and the side effect to that is this constant coughing, you know. <coughs> yeah. So you're up, you're up all night anyway. Um, but finally, you know, not to spoil any 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 part of the book, but finally I ended up in Chicago at the University of Chicago Medicine. And it was in Chicago where, when I arrived, the transplant team, and I was really really fortunate to get the top transplant surgeon. Probably in the world, this guy's transplanted over 1,500 people. Wow. He's Indian, which I believe is a record. And Dr. Juvenandan, uh, when he saw me, he looked at me and he said, look, you, you're, I don't even know how you're walking around. But he said, we've got to figure out a way, even with this vest, this milrinone, we've got to figure out a way to keep you alive until a donor heart comes available. Because these things, you know, they're just not sitting on the shelf. So he tells me, he said, you know, I've been working on this experimental pump for many, many, many years. And he said, it's really cool. I'll just put a, a, a slit in your chest and I'll fish this little balloon pump down through the middle of your heart. And out, the, out your left side will be the wires and there'll be a titanium disc under your rib cage. Those wires will come out and they'll attach to this heart pump, which is about the size of a lunchbox. And he said, this way you can walk around and, you know, your, your, your body won't atrophy anymore, which is a really big problem because I was right. 172. I, you know, I wizened down to about 138. I was a skeleton. And I said, oh, that's so cool, Doc. I said, oh, so how many people have had this thing? He said, well, that's just it. <laughs> he said, uh, we've only tested this on cows. Um, and I said, oh, oh. I, said, oh. <laughs> I said, I said, you mean where steaks come from? <laughs> he said, well, we've tested it on some pigs too. I said, oh, that's what I was going to ask you too. Don't I've heard of, do they use pig hearts or something like that sometimes? Or have they tried that? I feel like I've heard about something like that with heart transplants. Well, they could do a valve. Okay. They, they could do a pig valve, which is very successful. People get them all the time, but the heart, yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. So you're probably a hard expert at this point. I am a hard expert. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So long and short of it is, is that, uh, so only one other person had that pump in, but it was only for like 48 hours and their heart came. And he said, so we need three weeks of data to move this thing forward to the FDA for human trials. And uh, I said, how many people do you think it could help? And he said, if this thing works, we're going to change the history of cardiac care together. Wow. And we did. Awesome. Um, so now I think over 90 people have been uh, installed with the, with the, the new, it's called the New Pulse. Uh, you can look up their website, Heart Pump. And I had the New Pulse in me. And even with the New Pulse, my heart just gave out again hmm. before, my, before my donor arrived. <clears throat> Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about Molly and then the heart and the connections and uh, that whole aspect of this. So okay. who is Molly and how does she play a role in this story? Yeah, so 
what happened was, and this is when I had my my most profound near-death experience, is that right before Molly arrived, my heart gave out again, and I was uh, alone in my hotel, in my uh, hospital bed, and I was on the eighth floor of the hospital, and I had a view of downtown Chicago, Lake Michigan, and there was this storm raging outside, this incredible storm. And when you're that high up, it's like you're, you know, you're in the middle of the clouds and the sheets of rain are banging on the window. And, and there I was, and my heart's going into tar- tachycardia. And kind of interesting because I just, I was so tired, you know, guys, after fighting this long, it was six months and I was sure. just wizened, man. And I finally just released, I just gave up. I just released my soul. I just, and I, and I just cried out, do with me what you will. And curiously, it was in that moment that I was taken up into what I call in the book as the ethereal. And I found myself, the best way to describe this is that I found myself standing in the middle of nowhere. And the, the only way that I could describe it is it's kind of like if you're, you're flying in an airplane on a clear day and you're sitting there and you're looking out the window, you can see everything. But you really don't see anything at all, do you? I mean, it's just emptiness. Right. And and that was the first part of my experience. I'm standing in the middle of nowhere. I'm looking down. I could see my, you know, my my atrophied body ready to die in this green hospital gown. I could see the, you know, the wires coming out of me. I could hear the the pump pumping my heart. And at the same time, I could see myself standing in the middle of nowhere. Um, in the same hospital gown, but looking whole and normal and well. And then this this knowing came across and this peace came across me that it felt like somebody picked up the grains of my being and just threw them into a strong wind and scattered me across this infinite timeless universe. And then I began to get these downloads I just understood everything at once. It was like any question that I ever had answered, I already knew. All I had to do was observe, and that question was already answered. And while I was in that place, I was thinking, wow, this is how the the creator must have designed it. It's so freaking simple. We're all made of the same stuff. It's the same formula. We just manifest differently. It's the only way the creator could do it. Mm. And it was... It was this inexplicable experience that it's, I spent three years writing this book and Into the Ethereal is the shortest chapter in the book. And it took me the longest to write because there is no language for this experience. And when I was in that place, you know, I realized that I was not my, my, my body. I was not my race, my religion, that I was just part of all of this, this one infinite vastness from from where we all come it's like a non-dualistic kind of a feeling yeah it was um it was a feeling of unity uh and oneness and then the 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 most fascinating part of it all this is where this is where the the title to the book comes from i both saw and simultaneously became part of this interactive web of lights that seemed to be hanging on the hanging on the ceiling of the universe, this tapestry of lights. And the, the way I describe it in the book is that it looked like it was made out of trillions and trillions of neurons. And we all know what a neuron is from, you know, from basic biology in high school. Right. The neuron has a nucleus, and inside that nucleus is what I saw was like this little spark or quark of light. And then you have the tentacles of the, the, they're all woven together. And it just created this beautiful tapestry of twinkling lights that hung on the ceiling of the universe. And I realized then that I was connected to everything and that we're all one. And, and while I was in that place, I thought to myself, if I, if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I love, the light will spread. And it was, it was, that experience to me defined who we are why we're connected how we're connected 
because we're all part of that one irreproachable light, which I believe comes from God. I believe that God's our identity. That's what that experience showed me. I believe that we're all connected. And it was in that place, too, that I saw my daughter. And that's a very emotional part for me. But in that place, Mike, this, I, my daughter is uh, 25 now. She's, she has Rett syndrome. It's very rare, rare. She can't you know, walk, talk, feed herself. And Marie and I have always had this very strong spiritual relationship. And we're able to communicate. I know Maria's thoughts. I could see it in her eyes. I know her every sound. But in, in that place, at least my experience was, there's no language. There was no language in the ethereal. There was no, the five senses really don't have functionality there. There was no sense of taste or smell. There was no language. Language is more of telepathy and synchronicity at the same time, if that makes sense. It's sure. like you think a thought and it's, it's felt and absorbed by the other person, but there's nothing spoken there. So I see Maria standing there in the middle of nowhere, and I start having a conversation with her, and she's perfect and whole, and her eyes are filled with this spiritual light, this light that I, in, I knew in that place animated all life. And I said to her, Maria, I don't, your mother and I don't know what to do anymore. We've taken you everywhere to heal you. We don't know what to do when you're suffering and having seizures. You know, I've never heard your voice. I've never heard you say, I love you, Daddy. What can I do? And she said to me, just love me. Mm. And when she said, just love me, it was then that I cried out into that ethereal space and I heard my own voice echo back, I never want to leave this place. And when I heard I never want to leave this place, I found myself back in my hospital bed. That's crazy. Um, so a couple things. Actually, your description of the quarks of light and all the little lights, it actually kind of, are you familiar with the analogy? And actually, we created a platform called this, but Indra's Web, it's an ancient Vedic and Hindu analogy for the universe that there's all these jewels or pearls that radiate light off one another, almost like the inside of, like you were saying, like a brain and neurons firing or the universe and light bouncing off of each other kind of a thing i have never heard this you gotta remember <laughs> so i just the book it was only launched in late february right. and so it hasn't been out very long and i haven't read a whole lot of near-death experience books but what did you say this is I'm it's, writing it's it called indra's web or indra's net uh it's it's it's, it's um it's found in the rig veda which is like one of the oldest buddhist and hindu texts uh it's one of the vedas but it's again it's this analogy even like alan watts um, has used it as an analogy when describing like the universe and stuff like that too. Um, it's just, you know, like everything's connected. Like I said, non-dualistic, everything's connected and everything bounces light off one of each other, which I think is interesting because if you've never heard of that, it's almost like verification that maybe that there's something to this. Never heard of that. But I can tell you that what fascinated me and it took me years to figure this out, you know, after I got my heart, I had to live in Chicago by myself in an apartment because for a year, because after transplant, the hospital is responsible for you. I mean, if, if you reject, if the heart rejects, they can lose their transplant license. So, mm. you know, every week you have to go for testing and it's, it's a, it's a real grind. But in that, in that window, that year, I was able to research and try to figure out this experience and talk to a lot of different people. And in addition to, you know, feeling the essence of another human being living inside me, which is an entirely different story. But it was there that I began to, to understand and piece together um, parts of the book through my journals and through some of the, the things that came to me through meditation while I was in that, in that space by myself for a year Looking back, it was a, it was the best thing that ever happened because it was the genesis for the book, um, in addition to my my journals. Right. So, but now I can you know see hearing more of this and seeing this as it unfolds, and a lot of people now. I was on coast to coast uh, AM a couple of weeks ago, and 
the response that I got from people, the emails were just unbelievable. And some of their stories, sure, uh, uh, affirming this light and these, you know, specks of light in Spanish. I forget what it's called, but it's got tiny pieces of light, which, you know, again, I believe that God uses light to create, heal, and transform us. And even though we're finding out new things all the time, uh, right now, quarks are pretty much known as the smallest building blocks of matter. And quarks, I think there are six identifiable quarks now. And these quarks, they combine to create infinite possibilities. Right. So when you think about it, you know, it's like Play-Doh. So you can you can manipulate these quarks to become a tree, a dog, or a person. And yeah. that's why, you know. They actually just discovered possibly a new force, of, a fifth force of uh, nature, too, with what they're doing with some atomic particles and these particle colliders. I mean, uh, just the idea that we have everything figured out is insane. I, we always talk about the philosophy of science and how we're never going to know everything. So you, you know, for some of these things like your experience and stuff, um, it's almost like, how do you deny that experience in the face of not having all the answers, you know? So, um, Right. You know, I, I, I think you do have to have a little bit of faith when it comes to this and a little bit of hope. And I think the people that are devoid of any sort of higher calling or um, something higher order or something like that, I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, not a great way to live. And it's very um, depressing. And the people, you know, like a Richard Dawkins or somebody like that, you hear them talk. It's like, oh, this is the most depressing thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it really is. It's it's pretty much, you know, they're just trying to, I think, sometimes convince themselves of their own theories. Mm. Right. But when, when you have this myopic view of the world, I mean, come on. I, it, they're discovering new galaxies all the time. Right. It's just it's astounding. And for us to think that we're the only forms of life in the universe, I think, is very arrogant to assume such a thing. So, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Why well, do you think we need, though— to experience something as great as a near-death experience to understand the oneness or unity, do you think that's the ultimate goal as a human, is to realize that without having that experience? You know, Maurice, what a great question, because I've pondered that a lot and meditated on that a lot, and I'll tell you what I came to, um, or I should say what my watershed moment was, where, where that whole thing shifted for me. So when I was in Chicago, I could tell you in that year, um, I got very depressed. And so my wife and daughter are back here in, in Charlotte, and here I am living alone. And, and those those first, you know, six, seven, eight months were really tough. Even though I missed them, I have to admit, and it was hard for me to admit, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be here at all. I wanted to be back there. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in that ethereal place where I was one with everything and connected to everything, where I could see my daughter perfect and whole again. I didn't want to be down here. And I'll never forget, I, um, there was a, believe it or not, a, a, a pastor from a Chinese church. I, I work for an independently held company, and there's a lot of Chinese in, in this company. And one of the pastors came to visit me one day and I felt very safe talking to him about this saying, Hey, I feel really guilty about this. I mean, I was on my floor while I was waiting for my heart. People were dying, kids younger than me. You know, why did I get a heart? I have so much guilt. And I said, the, the worst part is I don't want to be here. I want to be back there. And what he said to me was, is that you have to learn to see the divine while you're here on earth. Mm. And when you see the divine here, then you'll be able to enjoy life. You'll be able to share your experience with other people. Because back then, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sales manager for a steel company. It's a very mature, conservative industry. So <clears throat> I didn't want to write the book. I was like, oh, my, my clients are going to think I'm a nut. <laughs> and I better not do this, you know. And it was my conversation with Pastor Mann, actually, he's in the book, that said to me, you've got to learn how to see the divine right here on earth. You don't have to go back into the ethereal. And part of that was seeing the divine in one another. 
and understanding that if we're all connected, if we're all part of this or just a piece of this one light, why can't we why can't we live in peace? You know, what's the reason for racism? What's the reason for all this division? Why do religions divide? Why do, are there wars? If we're all one and we're all connected, you know, why can't we seem to grasp this concept? And, you know, I had to die to figure it out. So I'm not saying I'm anybody special. Right. <laughs> but, but I think that when we really get that, that we are, are all connected and we're all made out of the same stuff, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, what's what's the deal, guys? What's the problem? Why can't we all get along? Mm, yeah. So, you know, but it's it's hard it's hard to get that message across, and that's part of the reason why I wrote the book, and part of the reason why I agree to come on podcasts, like talk to guys like you, you know, to spread this message of unity and oneness. Particularly now, we need it more than ever. Everybody feels very isolated. And we need to talk about these things. But, you know, I, I, I took a walk after Pastor Man told me that. And I started pulling leaves down from trees with reverence and, you know, ripping them open and looking at them and, you know, Googling the anatomy of a leaf and, and discovering that, holy cow, you know, it's this, it is the same design. I mean, it's, you know, whether it's a leaf or a solar system or a human being, we're kind of like all integrated into into the same design mm -hmm. and, and it's fascinating to to think about that and open your mind to those possibilities and this is where i think we're going to find peace within ourselves and peace within our world mm. yeah i mean my mom's had a traditional near-death experience where she saw family members and my deceased sister um and that's an interesting thing you were talking about your daughter being whole because i saw in meditation one time, I've talked about this, but I saw my sister who was born with a lot of issues, same thing, whole, deep in this meditation experience I had this one time. So while I haven't had near-death experiences, I've had psychedelic experiences, I've had meditation experiences, and I've had experiences where it's not as vivid kind of as what you're talking about or maybe as transcendent, but yeah, I think we can get there, you know, in, in these waking or altered states um, with you know, maybe a little help here and there, but in terms of uh, achieving that ultimate thing that you're talking about, it seems like a lot of people that have near-death experiences that really go all the way don't want to come back. That's something I've heard most people that have had the near-death experiences that, that they're, they're fully immersed in. They always talk about not wanting to come back and they feel guilty afterwards. Those are um, archetypes that people experience. So there's obviously something to it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask too is, you know, you're talking with your cardiologists and your heart doctors and the heart transplant and all that stuff. Is that something that they've experienced this type of a thing before? Because it seems like there's a lot of data to suggest that a lot of these metaphysical near-death experiences are correlated with uh, heart attacks or, um, you know, heart issues. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you that I learned a lot about the heart throughout this process because having having your birth heart ripped out of you, you know, and and replaced is um, is unlike any other experience in, in that you can ever imagine because it's not just another organ. What I learned about the heart through my research because I had I had this experience of uh, this person expressing in me. And I've talked to a lot of other transplant patients that have also had this experience. And I found out that the reason is, is that the heart, of course, forms first in, 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 uh, in, in utero. It's the heart, really, that it obviously is, has to pump blood and oxygen and everything else throughout the body and to develop the brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the heart develops this. Um, and, and I forget what it is in medical terms, but it's essentially a series of cells that actually hold some of the information, our preferences, um, music, memories, personality, that is stored in the heart. It has its own brain because the heart is what communicates with the brain first. It's not the other way around. Mm. And of course, they learned this back in the 1800s, but, but nobody thinks about that. 
and you don't even consider these things, of course, until you get a transplant, right? Right. Then you have to you have to learn about these things. The other thing I found out is that is that the heart, it its electromagnetic field is a hundred times stronger than the brain. So the heart is really what I learned from the Heart Math Institute, and this is science. This isn't my opinion or something that I've made up. But the Heart Math Institute in California has proven that the heart is actually like uh, a transmitter. Mm. If you think of if you think of the heart as a radio transmitter, and you think of the brain as a landline, is probably a good way to differentiate the two. So the heart is, I think, where our intuition comes from, uh, our gut comes from, because th this electromagnetic pulse can go out as far as three feet around a person. And I'm sure you, you've experienced it when you're sitting with something, some someone and you're talking and you have this intuition or you could feel energetically something's either right or wrong or whatever. It's the heart communicating. And they've done these these uh, studies where they put couples in a room and it was a 90-day study and they actually hook up EKGs to the couples and before you know it, their hearts are in precise rhythm with one another. So the heart has its own way of communicating with uh, electromagnetic pulses with another human being. So it's a fascinating thing to me. So yes, uh, these doctors are now understanding this. They're seeing more and more of these type of things go on, particularly with the heart. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I'm going to look into this more too, because I mean, I, a lot of what you're saying, I, you know, I've heard before, kind of felt, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm definitely interested, especially the gut feeling stuff, because I know most of your serotonin is actually stored in your gut. So that gut feeling, that's a direct connection. It's probably... The heart's probably, um, you know, like a a, a a stop point up to your yeah, your brain to gateway. get to that point. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's probably yeah. something going on there between your serotonin and, and uh, all that. That's that leads me to my next question too. Um, and I don't know if you've ever looked into this or heard of this, but there's um, we have a, a molecule in our body called dimethyltryptamine, which is one of the most potent psychedelics found in nature. Also. Um, and we, we produce it in our body and it's produced in our brain. Um, do you think that, um, and there's some speculation and some abstract information that points to people that have these cardiac arrests, there's correlations between spiked, possibly dimethyltryptamine and that. Now, when I'm saying this, I'm not dismissing that as some chemical process and that's what you experienced. People right. that, that do DMT, you know, psychedelic experiencers connect with God, they see entities, they connect with things. So there, there's this idea that possibly that is the, it's almost like a transition or some sort of gateway, like a chemical gateway to some other realm or dimension or something like that. Is yeah. that something you ever heard about or thought about or... Never heard about that. I've learned two things from from you guys today, which is I'm going to have to research. That's fascinating because I've never heard. There's a good book. It's called uh, DMT: The Spirit Molecule by Dr. Rick Strassman. We've had Dr. Strassman on the show too. I can send you our interview too. It's 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 interesting stuff. So, I mean, like I said, I'm not diminishing to any sort of you know processes in the body or anything like that. But I do think that um, people that experience DMT again, which is the most potent psychedelic, um, are their their realities instantaneously replaced with this alternate universe, and uh, they feel like they're in commune with higher powers and higher entities. And people even, you know, suspect that it's spiritual. There's a lot of people that consider it a spiritual or um, something like that in nature. So again, I was just bringing that up to see if you heard about that. Mm. But uh, yeah, let's. Uh, I, I I haven't. Let's talk about now uh, Molly. I think we we got we got through your your quark, you know, uh, you know the quarks of light experience and the metaphysical stuff. Now Molly is the person's name of the, the that's the heart that you have that you got from the heart transplant, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And you have become an advocate for suicide prevention and everything because Molly. 
the, the person's heart you have committed suicide and then also obviously you talked about frosty, frosty earlier yeah. um so have you what have you looked into for like our what are you doing with mental health are you doing anything or you're just an advocate for against that or what's the process there you know honestly i haven't i've been asked uh by several people i've been asked by pastors i've been asked by english teachers to geez can you write an epilogue uh, about suicide mm -hmm. particularly amongst you know our youth because Molly was 20 years old. So at the time I got my heart, she was the same age as my daughter, Marie, which is like really freaky. As a matter of fact, she was born three months before my daughter, Maria. Wow. And Molly had a special affection for special needs children. And there are a lot of other quote unquote coincidences about Molly that uh, are just, you know, hair raising in nature, which I think is evidence that once again, we're all connected. You know, I believe in purpose, and I believe that we all have a mission here. We all have a gift. We all have something that we have to express, because I believe that God both expresses and experiences life through us. That's what I've learned on my journey. It's the only way it can work. So, you know, who's to who's to know? It may have may have been Molly's uh, only purpose to to give me her heart. I don't know because she now can live through me. Hmm. Uh, in a much different manner and, and we can work together you know to spread this word and helping but take honestly, care of your daughter you said she had an affinity for helping uh kids absolutely yeah absolutely so i think that for me i don't know if i'm going to go you know lean full full force into that direction because i know that it, there's a lot of organizations out there but i i can tell you that it's something I'm passionate about, because when you look at what's happening, um, and I don't know what the what the rates are now, but they're they're astounding, of how many young people are are committing suicide. And through my research, at least in Molly's case, and I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations, but I could tell you in Molly's case, uh, social media. The yeah, I was going to say it's, it's horrible. The misuse of social media, Maurice, had a lot to do with it. And yeah, it's sad. I mean, mental health is definitely an issue. I have my own mental health issues. I mean, everybody that watches the show knows I have severe OCD, which is, you know, a very not fun thing to experience on a daily moment by moment. Uh, you know, and you get it under control and you figure out different things, but it's still one of those things you just know you're going to be living with forever. But, um, yeah. but yeah, the mental health thing, we definitely need to um, get under control. Um, do you feel different having, like, do you, I guess you do feel different, but do you feel, is there something noticeably different since after you had the heart transplant, Molly's had Molly's heart transplanted into you is, have you felt like a different person in any way? Yeah, I do. Because there's, there's, um, there's a lot of research about, matter of fact, one of the women that <laughs> I could tell you that had, a. Uh, a heart transplant at the same time as me on my floor it was kind of curious because she, right after she came out of uh, ICU and into recovery, you know, that's part of the process, she had this hankering for chocolate milk and she was just relentless. I mean, the nurses for like the first two months, they had to go to different floors to get chocolate hmm. milk because this woman just, she just could not, she hated chocolate milk. So a year later, she met. Um, the mom of her donor, and turns out her daughter was uh, addicted to chocolate milk. Oh wow! And there are other stories that you know my doctors told me in Chicago. And I'm sure if you research this, so even like my doctor said, he said, you know, Rob, we science has figured out a way to put a heart inside another person, but we really don't know what we're doing spiritually. And we really don't know what we're doing in, in metaphysically, but we know we can make this thing work. I mean, I'll be on like for I'll be on immune suppressants the rest of my life or Molly will reject. But, you know, it's curious because my personality changed a little bit. I got Molly was um, a, went through periods of depression and 
She also had uh, a hankering for junk food. I've never had a hankering for junk food my whole life. My wife laughs at me because <laughs> I went through this M&M phase, which was Molly's favorite. And I didn't find that out until I talked to her best friend, like, you know, almost two years later. I said, why do uh -huh. I like M&Ms? You know, all of a sudden. Just regular uh, or peanut butter? <laughs> no, regular. <laughs> Maurice uh, is on fire with the questions today. I've never heard such great <laughs> questions from Maurice. Oh, man, I'm telling you, my, my taste in music changed uh, for a while. So, and it, and it continues, you know, particularly in those, in the second year, that's when Molly really began to express in me. And she just kept on kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. She made me dig, 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 dig to get to the heart of why she took her own life. And like I say, um, social media had a lot to do with that. These, you know, there's a lot of bands out there, guys, that promote and make these songs about how cool suicide is. So she was listening to one of those CDs in her car the day that she did it. So there are a lot of things, but the trap of this uh, unreal world of social media is that these that these kids obviously begin to compare themselves with other people. You know, most of the time people only post their perfect life. Right. And they start, if they're not perfect, they get bullied. They lose their self-esteem. They go, you know, this. so this downward spiral starts and they can't seem to get out of it. And before you know it, yeah. they, they, they just, they lose all their self-worth and one thing leads to another. So. Uh, we were lucky enough to be part of we lived before this whole craze, but even me, I can see how you're looking at, you know, particularly women, they see these perfect, well, first of all, they're using filters and things like that. So half these pictures you see aren't even the real representation of the people that you're seeing. But as, as a child, you don't know that. So you're seeing these pictures, you're thinking that's how a woman's supposed to look or a man or whatever. And so you don't even have anything of reality to base that upon. You know what I mean? To your point right. too, it's everybody's perfect life. I mean, I've had this conversation right. with multiple people in my family. Like, of course this person's on vacation, you know, doing, living it up or they're always yeah, doing right. this or they're always eating the best thing. They're, nobody's going to post their worst side or their bad day or like people that you should. I think it would be more realistic to the yeah. human experience, but um, yeah, that, that's a big problem. And I think that, uh, I think people are becoming more aware of that now. Um, I think for a while the internet was so new, a lot of these issues just kind of like crept up and we're just kind of like, um, under the radar. But I think now we kind of understand and see some of these patterns and see some of these things, uh, starting to come to the, to the forefront and hopefully we can, uh, deal with this stuff. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I just, people out there just know that social media is always, you know, people's best, it's their best joke or their best, you know, um, thoughts or their best pictures or whatever. It's always the best. So just don't, yeah. don't think that everybody's perfect out there. Everybody has their own problems. Everybody has different issues. Everything's kind of relative in terms of, uh, your own life. So just, um, yeah, I would just take that into account for sure. Um, well, but you, you know what, Mike, before we move on, I just have to make one more comment because sure. I, I write about this in the book, um, and I and I still see it today. But what's changed, you see, is is that this is how the younger generation wants to communicate. There's a scene in the book that I talk about. You know, when I was living in Chicago, I went to lunch with a colleague, and here I am watching this beautiful family, and their children are sitting across from one another, texting instead yeah. of talking mm -hmm. and the parents are doing the same thing the waitress comes brings their food they don't even look up thank her she, they're oblivious to what's going on around them and you know the tragedy of that is is that we're missing out on this the human touch you know and the communication that is so important for our development and and for society and you know I, when i look at that and i see how these kids are just you know shrunk into their own world Man, I, I don't I can't tell you what I would give to have a conversation with my daughter, but everything is taken for granted. You mm -hmm. know, these phones have become in, in a way, you know, kind of like the the, the babysitter right. for, for some for some people. And tragic to me, you know? So Yeah, you I, know, you know I what's weird is that. I I go out and I've actually made this a point where I don't even bring my phone into the restaurant 
problem is now restaurants menus are built, <laughs> it's a little the square thing you take a picture and the menu comes up so I, I in the fancier the restaurant it seems like that's more of the issue i've been going to these places and they look at me like i'm some kind of freak They're like you don't have your phone with me i go no i purposely don't bring my phone in here can i get a physical menu from you guys yeah, and then they, they 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 look at me like I'm some some freak, you know. Uh, the <laughs> like, other you're the freak, bro. The other thing uh, that I'd mention too is that um, when you look at what's going on, I mean, I personally I wouldn't even be on if we didn't have a podcast and I didn't have to post or promote or anything like that. I wouldn't be on social media. Maybe Facebook a little bit to keep in touch with family and check out pictures of my nieces and nephews and family members right. and stuff like that. But yeah, I wouldn't be on social media probably at all if i didn't have a podcast i mean i wasn't on it much before so um mm -hmm. yeah i mean we we were fortunate we grew up in the time of experiences where you actually you know you're going to concerts you're going to different cities to see bands you're going to ex experience you know sporting you know you're going to do all these things so yeah it's going to be interesting to see what technology has in store for us but it seems like we're uh we're on path where it's just a, it's it's a runaway train at this point with, with technology. I don't see it stopping or I think we're going to kind of become a whole different thing at some point here. Well, you lose touch with, you know, you lose touch with, uh, everything that's good, that God created around you. For example, you know, mm -hmm. when I grew up, man, I just wanted to go outside, you know, dig in the dirt, build dams, catch frogs, mm -hmm. uh, all of this stuff. And, that's just not happening anymore. So, but when you do that, you develop an appreciation for nature and living things and all of this. But now, you know, all you got to do is pull it up on your phone. <laughs> right. You know, you could. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Well, I talk about that in the last hiking video. I turn my phone off and actually nature provides its own blanket for you because like we were up in the mountains in Colorado and you had no phone service. So it's almost a big relief. And I was, I was afraid to turn my phone back on because I knew as soon as I did all the, <laughs> all the hassle and worry and anxiety from the outside world, were going to come flooding back in, but yeah. it's nice to just go out there and actually, I know some restaurants are actually implementing that, which is kind of cool is they have a, a blanket over the restaurant and you can't get on the internet or anything like that. So that's kind of a cool concept. Haven't heard about that, but that's awesome. And thank goodness they didn't allow cell phones on planes. Remember when they were considering that? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, crazy. So, is there anything? Yeah, yeah. Um, is there? Do you have time maybe to do like a few Q and A's on uh, our Patreon? Do, do you have? Oh, sure, sure, well, sure. Let's, let's wrap it up here. Is there anything else you wanted to say or um, add to the to your your story or anything before we wrap up this portion? Not really, because you know, Mike. I would. I don't want to spoil anything. No, I know it's, it's a great book. I mean, I, there's so much to unpack in the yeah. book. I mean, I was I was so humbled by the results. I mean, it became number one in 13 categories, and I was just blown away by that. That's awesome. So, yeah, um, and I think that that you know, look, you know, we've we do fringe things and woo woo things, and we talk about a lot of stuff on this podcast. I think that there's something. I'm at this point now where I can distinguish, I think, you know, not people that are telling the truth or anything like that, but just there's, there's stories that have basis in reality. And then there's people that say things where it's like, oh, you know, can you back that up? Or, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, they'll just say things that, that's purely speculative or whatever. And I thought what was refreshing about yours was the amount of like science and references and the doctors telling you certain things and adding those in the book and things like that. So there was a, a lot of credibility added to your story that again, not that, you know, I don't believe people like we've had tons of people on the show uh, that have written books on the subject and stuff like that. And I just think that um, there are certain things in these topics that can get a little out there, but I didn't get that vibe at all from reading your book. And I, I highly recommend it from, um, a spiritual aspect, but also a, um, even a materialist, you know, materialistic aspect too. I think that there's something to be gained, like you said, like achieving something on this earth. And obviously that's why you were sent back or brought back is to finish what you started or clean things up, like you said, or something like that. So I just want to say thank you for writing the book. And I thought you did an excellent job. Thank you so much. And all of those doctors, 
everybody in that book had the opportunity to refute what I said. Uh, all those doctors are in my cell phone. We've become friends over the years. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot that went into it. Well, you can tell, like I said, it's very authentic and very appreciative. And uh, we need more of these types of um, presentations of these topics. And I think that would help people that are resistant to some of these ideas get over that hurdle. I think so too. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. All right, folks. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up here and do a Patreon segment. And uh, if you're interested, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. We're about to do one with Rob here. And uh, it's a whole other catalog of, of episodes and guests that we've had on the show. So go check that out. And uh, also head on over one more time to indrasweb.org. This is a social media platform we created to connect open minds. Um, whether it's discussing near-death experiences, metaphysics, metaphysical things, it's the perfect place to have that conversation and discuss different hypotheses, theories, speculations. So head on over there and set up a profile. Um, but yeah, thank you so much again, Rob. And uh, we love everybody. Stay safe out there and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thank Peace. you. Thank you. Thank you.